But I know we've done this before, but still, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, no problem. My name is Alex Koss. I'm an assistant strength and conditioning coach with the Philadelphia 76ers, and I'm the head strength and conditioning coach for their G League affiliate, the Delaware Bluecoats. Cool. So is this the second year of the league? Yeah, this is my second year in the G League and uh, had some trials and tribulations in the first year and got a nice smooth flowing operation throughout the second year, which culminated in a G League title for our team. And, and that was pretty cool. Nice, nice. So uh, from year one to year two, do you have, is there like anything you have, like, is it, does it get easier? I would say... I don't know if it gets necessarily easier, but being with the same staff and the same group of people for the second year, you kind of know tendencies, the communication gets a little bit better. So just things flow a little bit smoother and we kind of all knew what to expect. So I guess you could say that's how it gets easier in a sense, um, knowing kind of the travels to different cities and what places are going to have what equipment or things like that. Um, but in terms of the day to day, I don't necessarily think it got easier as opposed to being more efficient, I, I guess would probably be the word that I use. So, uh, I still want to ask some question about the content you post on Instagram, which is like very yeah. interesting. Thank you. I appreciate you. So first thing, there is a return to plyo on your Instagram. So can you like uh, tell us about your thought process about like after injury, how do you get like your players to return the plyometric? Yeah. So that was based on a systematic review that I read a little bit ago, probably about a year. Um, and I just thought it was really good, really well written. I thought they considered a lot of different factors and I thought that the return to plyo protocol was um, pretty, pretty solid. And, and I really liked that everything that they did in the entire program. And so the full thing would be return to plyometrics after ACL reconstruction. Um, and all I wanted to do is just kind of pass that knowledge on a little bit, you know, like tell you guys how I interpret everything, but they looked at things, I mean, all, from like limb strength index, right versus left. I know they did that with the leg press. They have a lot of benchmarks that they want you to reach in terms of like the limb differential between the operation leg and the non-operative leg, as well as they start, people off doing plyos and pools right so unweighted to banded unweighted into different types of landing areas so like a trampoline versus sand as well as then progressing them into full-on plyometrics different aspects of the stretch shortening cycle fast versus short and um some even loaded jumps and i think that it was a really good way to go about it because in that instance, if you're looking at return to plyo from ACL reconstruction, the biggest predictor of an ACL injury is already having an ACL injury. And obviously, that's not ideally to start. But if you're given a player or a client who has had one, then you have to acknowledge the fact that they have had an ACL rupture. And so I think that the way that they go about it in terms of, all right, let's make sure that these limbs are strong enough separate as opposed to strong enough together. And with that, Matt Jordan actually gave an interesting um, talk on this at the combine 
And he said that actually what happens a lot of the time is when these limbs start to gain um, their asymmetries back and they start to become more symmetrical in strength, it's actually more of the uninjured limb getting weaker as opposed to the injured limb getting stronger. So what's really important to consider now looking at that is what was their strength unilaterally and bilaterally pre-injury? And when we get back to being symmetrical post-injury, is that at the pre-injury force production capacity, right? Or let's say you could produce a thousand newtons of force before the injury and you were at symmetrical, quote unquote, right? Like nobody's perfect, but within the range. And then after the surgery, let's say you're symmetrical, but you're producing 600 newtons of force. Well, you have symmetry between the legs, but do they have the force producing capacity to go back to the sport or activity that they were doing prior to being injured? So now that adds another layer of, okay, it's great that they're symmetrical, but now there needs to be a certain basis of strength with that symmetry. And so I think that would be a good layer to add into that. But the way that they go about it in terms of making sure that the limbs are good to go, working from extensive plyometrics to intensive plyometrics, working bilateral to unilateral, the unweighted to different landing types, uh, or sorry, different landing surfaces, and then eventually going into like loaded jumps, maybe even some sort of French contrast training where we're loading it differently within the same workout. Um, I, I think that that, article was really good and now knowing what i know from the combine it just even adds more context into the the limb strength index and and what the capacities in terms of symmetries are actually showing us so in that in that post there's like uh you categorize like uh return apply into like four stages yep so can you like uh talk how do you divide these like four stages i got you i'm going to go back to the post right now <laughs> bam there you go so this is a really good post and i not post but article and i really haven't done this uh or, or looked at it as much so i'm kind of just going to go through it but i really like what it has i mean obviously it starts with lower intensity plyometrics and extensive plyos and with that and by natural or i guess by nature of extensive plyometrics your ground contact times are going to be longer right so if it was more intensive plyo you're looking for power output and part of power is time so you want to spend less time on the ground so i like that they start off with you know one to two second ground contact times a lot of people consider that very very slow which is good that's what you need to do you need to just start reintroducing the stretch shortening cycle and the elasticity of the tendons able to transmit force. And so it looks like stage one is about weeks 10 to 14 post-op, which a lot of people think is probably a little early. So that's what two and a half months, but considering ACL reconstruction return to sport is generally the fastest. I think it's been like six months. I think it might've been like Adrian Peterson. Um, basketball i would say is probably closer to like eight months to a year just by the nature of the sport um so yeah i mean two and a half months to even start getting any sort of plyometrics are are incredible with stage two it looks like this is where they actually start factoring in that um asymmetries right and it looks like that's where they're really looking at it so now you want a an index um of 0.8 
between. So you don't want the injured limb to be 80% or less than 80% as strong. And the way they measured that, it looks like a single leg leg press of 1.25 body weight. I believe it. Uh, yeah, so single leg close chain strength. So it could be a leg press. It could be a squat. It could be anything um, like that. And so now with this increase in strength, the thought process would be maybe we can decrease these ground contact times a little bit, right? These muscles are a little bit stronger, so they can probably withstand the the force that's going to be coming through and the transmission of force from the tendons. And the main thing in these two first stages that I think isn't necessarily touched on in these posts are mechanics, right? So like landing mechanics, and that would probably be a big one. So in stage one, you can work on something like a snap down, but you could hold it for a one count before you jump back up, right? So now you can get your ground contact time of one second, but you can also get more of an eccentric exercise with a snap down while working on landing mechanics, or you can do that, you know, moving forward and back if you're worried about the anterior translation of the femur on the tibia for the ACL. I don't know if I'd go right into that as one of the first ones, but it's just starting to introduce those types of deceleration mechanics. With stage two, now, I mean, you're jumping a little bit more. So with the CMJ, obviously the ground contact time is going to be a lot because you're not necessarily leaving the ground and then you're not starting off the ground, touching the ground, and then leaving the ground, right? Your feet are on the ground the whole time. But in terms of the stretch shortening cycle, when you go into your eccentric phase back into the propulsive phase, that's generally about a second. So you can start working on things like that and getting a little bit more elastic without having to worry about really short ground contact times. And then now we're actually working a little bit more out of the amortization phase, right? So we had just worked on eccentrics. Now we're working on getting down and back out. So a little bit more of that reversal. So other things that would be good are kind of like reactive, maybe uh, like trap bar jumps or reactive maybe with a uh, weight vest. I don't know if you want to load them that early with a trap bar, but something that just adds to that. So they could be on their toes and then drop into a CMJ or they could just go straight from their feet, right? That would be a good way to progress that. In stage three, now we're going multi-planar, right? But you don't want to go straight into the transverse plane, especially from ACL, because that can obviously rotating landing can cause a lot of different actions at the knee. So frontal plane would be a good start anywhere from a two footed skater hop, right. To having somebody maybe push you and you kind of have to land yourself. And even though that's not necessarily a plyometric by nature, you can turn exercises into, into plyometrics. If you know what the different types of plyometrics are, right. Stretch shortening, uh, stretch shortening cycle, amortization phase and some sort of ballistic. So think this is where you can start to get creative, right? So what sport do they play? What position do they play in their sport? If they're a basketball player, you have to be able to move laterally. You have to be able to jump laterally. So that would be a good way to start introducing skater hops, single leg and double leg. Volleyball, you could work on that as well. Maybe in baseball, you're working on more of like a slide into a run, which is still a low-level plyometric, but it works. Um, football, right? Same kind of thing. You can think about a lineman or you can think about a DB having to slide as well as in basketball. And then 
now the ground contact times are getting even shorter. So not only are we introducing a different plane, ground contacts between 0.25 milliseconds and 0.4. So you, now you're seeing times that are closer to that which you see in sport. Although they may be on the slower side, that's because this is stage three and not stage four. And then this is where you would probably want to also start to introduce decreased body weight jumping. So you can probably do that between stage two and stage three. So maybe start them in the pool in stage two. And then stage three, you start doing maybe some band assisted stuff. So you're still decreasing body weight, but not to the degree that you are at the pool. And with the pool, you can start it off at chest height, right? And then lower that to maybe hips and then maybe to above knee. So you can still manipulate the different accommodating resistance and decrease in body weight with the pool. And then going into stage four is when you would really want to start ramping them up. You're getting triplanar. You're working in a lot of single leg plyometrics. And now we're looking for very, very short ground contact times. We can start getting to more, our more extensive end of the plyometric spectrum. So drop jumps, even depth jumps, repeat CMJs, repeat trap bar jumps. And getting them moving in three planes is really key. And this is when I would probably start to also hammer being able to decelerate from jumping on the injured leg. And you might, throughout this entire process, add one to two sets on the injured leg compared to the non-injured leg just to make sure that it's coming up through the same capacity. Um, these are, again, things that you would be able to measure and you would want to keep that with a grain of salt if you do not know the very first force production aspect prior to injury. So going through those four stages, again, sorry, I had to kind of read through it. I hadn't looked to that one in a while nice. in terms of specific uh, <laughs> like trademarks and exercises, but it just gave me another love for, for that review. Cause I think it's, it's so great. And, and I hope that that answers your question. Of course, of course, of course. I love that. So, uh, another, I'm going to jump to another topic about like the recent post. And yeah, so, uh, kind of want, um, Vasa training is like, there's a lot of people discussing about this, but what are your thoughts on Vasa training and, how would you like complement or complement into your like your own training program? Yeah. So what really got me interested in this is just kind of understanding that a lot of fascia, like fascias everywhere, right? And and you have to grasp that to really get what fascia training is. And the um no, a book I'm sure everybody tells everyone to read is anatomy trains is the, the first book to get you into fascia it's a textbook it's basically an anatomy book and you just understand what musculature is connected where how these fascia fascial trains run where they have pit stops where they start and end and what movements and how they affect you know locomotion or even stability or this concept of tensegrity where we want all of our fascia to be stiff but loose at the same time so that we can move through space and we don't have any sort of asymmetries or major asymmetries in our body due to knotted up fascia that could be the, through tight muscles or anything because we're in certain postures for a certain amount of time. But what really got me into this is just watching basketball. You realize how well basketball trainers transmit force and how efficiently and smoothly they can get from one place to another. And I know that happens a lot in football, but it's a lot more like one step cut. Right. A lot of it is 
force production base? How much can you decelerate and then just accelerate and maybe in like an 18 degree angle or 45 degree angle, whereas basketball, you're spinning a lot more, you're moving a lot more like 90 degree angles, maybe even a step back, which doesn't happen a lot in football because you want to go forward the whole time. And so just understanding, well, there's got to be a way that these guys are moving that great. And for me, I don't know if it's necessarily all the fascia, but I think it plays a big role because the fact that it is, there are certain lines that connect to different types of locomotion and different types of just pivotal movements in sports, such as a kick or a throw or a swing that it makes a lot of sense to me. And I don't think there's necessarily a lot of research out there in terms of published research on fascia and sports performance. But if you watch sports and you understand how these guys are moving, it does make a lot of sense. And so the way that most people train it is through global movements and trying to connect pieces of the upper body to pieces of the lower body. So transmitting force efficiently, um, a big person that's not necessarily in the fascia world, but talks about power leaks is Kelly Sturette in his book, becoming a supple leopard. So trying to, understand where these power leaks are then you can attack them more locally but the way that i train them are global movements i like using machines such as the kaiser and vipers and a good way to start to tap into them is going through a movement very slowly right not necessarily like a trap bar deadlift that's a five second tempo or a four second tempo but maybe you're holding a viper and you're going into a forward lunge where you're rotating over that forward leg but you're going nice and slow, maybe like a five second movement as a whole before you come back, just so that the fascia has time to understand the line of force that's coming as well as it elongates and it's sending messages along the fascia and to the muscles about what this movement is doing. And that is what helps get the the movement pattern into the player's brains and in terms of their movement library and their movement efficiency. And then once they understand what to do, now you can start messing with tempos or you can do oscillations or you can start working some power into there and seeing how they can transmit that force from that right foot to the right hand to throw something. For basketball, I like it a lot in terms of can we move and own our space? So like, can you do a forward lunge and reach up over your body where we hit the front line? But in basketball, that happens a lot. You might have to drive forward but then look back and reach up because a ball got knocked away. Or can you side lunge and reach over your head? That's a lateral line move. And not necessarily that you're always side lunging and reaching, but those are sports or those are positions that could happen to you in basketball. You need to be able to get low and still use your arms because the game is played above. I mean, the game's played above the rim, but so much stuff happens below the rim in order of like ball handling, playing defense, things like that. And then when you're looking at how it's played above the rim, let's say somebody's coming through the lane, one foot jump, right arm comes back before they dunk. Well, now you're looking at a front functional line where we're connecting opposite foot to opposite hand. So how are they generating that force smoothly and then punching it home? And you can tell with certain guys, sometimes when they go off a one foot jump, they might lean to one side, they might lean to another side because they do have certain knots I don't know if it's in their fascia. They might be tight. They might just have, you know, not very good bracing aspects, which isn't a huge fascia thing because a lot of the lines 
aren't necessarily centered around the core, but it helps you understand that it's so much more than just like your rectus abdominis, right? Than just your obliques that help the core bracing. Are, are you using the erectors? Are you using, you know, your transverse abdominis? Are you actually using the tiny muscles between your vertebrae in order to help it not collapse? Are you using you know, again, like your obliques or your anti-lateral flexors, your internal, external, intercostals. are you able to use your diaphragm even to help with breathing? So breathing in fascia is a big thing as well, because you're trying to help. It's, it's very fluid. It's one of the most fluid tissues in the body. So it's more than just training a singular muscle. And I, I guess the way I think about it is kind of what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a very global thing. And you can kind of tell when you see somebody if they're going to be a fascial mover or if they're going to be more of a stocky force producer. And in the basketball setting, you, you do see a lot of fascial elastic guys. Cool. So did you, did you like, uh, let your athlete like train these movement you posted on Instagram? Certain ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's see, ones I like. I love frontal plane abs. So that was one where you have the Kaiser up here, and now we're bending down. So that's a big lateral line one that I like. Um, another one I like is with the Kaiser, kind of like a split squat drop to a row. So we're looking for posterior oblique swing, or sling, sorry. But what that's good with is, are you able to drop into a split squat and then get out of it, and can you yank the ball back? So that comes into ball handling. Now can we let ourselves expand and then contract, expand and then contract, right? A lot of people talk about expanding compression or expansion compression, contract, relax. To me, they're all similar. It's just what kind of vernacular do you use? But you need that ability, right, to be able to slow down and speed up, contract, relax, compress, expand. And I think a lot of that is training the fascia, but then also letting them feel it. And so one of the ways that I'll introduce that split drop to a row is, hey, let's get on the Kaiser and let's do a windshield wiper where it pulls our hand over our front knee. So we should get a nice stretch in the back of that front hip all the way up across the back into our lap. So feel that, right? This is what that sling feels like. This is why you can feel a stretch going from your opposite glute across your back into that opposite lat, that contralateral lat. And then now when we go into that move, we'll probably start it with a split squat row first, right? And I know a lot of people think split squats wasn't that a quad exercise because it's it's a squat. Well, you could also just lengthen the feet out a little bit. Sometimes when guys are going and playing basketball and they go to decelerate, they create negative shin angles. You don't always need a positive shin angle in the – sport of basketball and negative shin angles are very prevalent in deceleration, whether it's transmitting horizontal force into vertical force or going forward to back. Right. And so now when they're dropping into a split squat, let's say lengthen it, get long, occupy space as an offensive player. And by doing that, now when you step out of it, you're creating space. Right. And so this is a big thing with Adam Petway is on defense, you're meant to occupy space on offense, you're trying to create space. But what if we can do both of those on offense? What if you can get low and get long and get wide and then use that length to create space? So now you're inhibiting the defender's ability to get up into your body. And when you come out of it, 
you've created maybe an extra couple inches, maybe an extra foot, which might be all you need to get a shot off or to get to the rack. Cool. So, like you mentioned, there's not really a lot of like public paper discussing about like fascia, uh, but there's uh, nowadays we tend to more focus on things that are more like that are more evidence driven. So why are like like force play like uh like velocity based trainings? But since there's not a paper on fascia, why are tons of coaches interested in this kind of like training? So I think that's almost where the art of coaching is. And so you can be an evidence-based coach or a practice-based coach. And a lot of people talk about EVP, right? Evidence-based practice or PBE, practice-based evidence. And so I think it's the yin and the yang of that, which is where it really comes into play. Because you want to have foundations of your program that are based on evidence, right? This is what this is what works. This is what Verkoshansky has been doing and the Soviets have been doing for years. And there's no reason to reinvent the wheel if we don't have to. But because fascia is newer and there's not as much research and it's harder to define because you can't necessarily separate these lines in living humans and then figure out how much force is being transmitted across these lines, right? It's so interconnected. It's hard to delineate what line is where, what line synergist is, you know, what, what line is the antagonist in this movement? What line is the antagonist? What lines are the synergists? But now what musculature and soft tissue is also involved in that? I mean, it, it gets, a little crazy when you think about it. And so I think a lot of guys like it. A lot of guys really enjoy it because they get exposed to these positions under light load, but they can feel them. They understand what that feels like. And not only from a movement library perspective, I think there's a confidence aspect that when they get into these positions in sport, they feel more comfortable just because they've already been exposed to them. And then on top of that, if you can add any sort of force transmission uh, improvements or any sort of way that they can feel more elastic and that they can say, Hey, I feel springier after doing this, or, Hey, I can get in and out of my right, left crossover into my left through the legs, right crossover through the legs behind the back. You know, if they feel that it's helping their game and they can get into certain positions and get in and out of certain moves that they hadn't been able to, I think there's something to be said about that. Just because there's no research paper published on it doesn't mean that you're not going to include that in your program. But for the most part, I would say a lot of it is supplemental stuff for me or maybe individualization based on the way that a guy plays. And if I know that he likes certain moves or if he doesn't like certain moves or if he can't move a certain way or if he always gets beat because he can't do this or that. So that's kind of where I think the art of coaching comes in, watching film, just understanding how each guy moves. I'm not saying I individualize it for every single player, but there's certain things in the sport that you see a lot of people struggle with. Cool. Love this. Love this. So, uh, that's all for Fasha. Next thing I want to discuss is like, how, or like, what do you think, or how do you think that like the sleep's going to affect our performance? Sleep and performance? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's paramount. I think when you're looking at recovery, there's two things. It's sleep and nutrition. And everybody wants a modality. Everybody wants some sort of supplement. And supplements are fine. But if you can get things through sleeping and eating instead of just taking a pill, then that's your main thing. 
So when I worked in college, I would tell my athletes, and it's relevant because they'd be taking a class, I'd say, hey, let's say sleep and nutrition are your tests and your homework and your hypervolt and your Normatex and your foam rollers and your tart cherry juice and all this other stuff is your extra credit and maybe, you know, like a group project that you have throughout the year. Well, if you fail your all your homework and tests, but you get an A on your extra credit and your group projects, you're still going to fail the class. So what matters is that you get an A in the in the stones, the foundation of the nutrition or the recovery pyramid for me, which is sleep and nutrition. And if you're not getting enough sleep, then there's no way that all these modalities are going to promote your recovery that the way that sleep can. I mean, there's so many benefits and I preach over eight hours a night. I, whenever I have to get up, I just think, okay, what's eight hours from there. Okay. That's when I need to go to bed. It's big for me. And not only does it help you recover just because that's when your body is literally recovering and rebuilding itself. And I know there's re different research based on light versus REM versus deep sleep and HRV and all that stuff. But, the thing that's not ever disputed is that getting more sleep is bad for you, especially as an athlete. When we're in a generation of people are getting like less than four or five hours of sleep a night. I mean, it doesn't matter what your HRV is, what your resting. I mean, your resting heart rate will be able to tell you something. But if you go from six hours of sleep to seven hours of sleep the next week, I'll bet you money there's a, that you're probably going to feel better you'll probably feel more rested. You'll probably feel more recovered and you'll probably feel stronger and more explosive in the sport that you're playing. I think there's just too much research out there. I just watched a, a guy from the basketball symposium. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but he's with the department of defense. Uh, I like Dr. Mita Singh's work. She's done some relevant work in basketball in terms of like free throw percentage, three point percentage. I mean, all this kind of stuff is going down. It's just, game is going down turnovers are going up and she said something that i really liked that said when you're tired and you're about to play a sport caffeine doesn't wake you up caffeine just helps you make bad decisions quicker and so that. a lot of these people think right so a lot of these people think that they can just take caffeine and they'll be alert and no you're not necessarily alert you're just less tired caffeine isn't energy right we know the only things that can provide actual energy are fat protein and carbs alcohol which is debatable but it's not necessarily energy even though it does have calories your body doesn't burn it the same and caffeine you know caffeine just blocks your sleep receptors so it just makes you less sleepy it's not being metabolized it's not being sorry it is being metabolized but it's not being metabolized as a nutrient or a macronutrient or something that can actually produce atp right and so that's that really hit me hard because i mean I, I do take caffeine caffeine is one of the most widely supported uh sports supplements you know and i think that it does have its place for sure but if you are reliant on it especially as an athlete because of a lack of sleep i mean it's different as a strength coach right like you can get eight hours of sleep but if you're in the facility 6 a.m to 7 p.m every single day like you're gonna need caffeine <laughs> it doesn't matter um but the first thing is always sleep, sleep and then nutrition. And then after that, I, I think anything is, is just a cherry on top. Cool. Did, did you watch baseball? Did I watch baseball? Yeah. Like, just growing up? 
Um, no, I mean like this. I think it's this year, like the world, uh, the world baseball classic. In the final, there was like the、oh. state versus the state's gonna compete with Japan. Do you watch that game? Or no, I didn't, but I should have because I am a baseball fan and I know that it was a a good a good classic this year just because of the diversity. So did did you heard of like Shohei Otani? Yeah, yeah,、uh, I know who Shohei Otani is. So. Uh, I think people are probably gonna be noticing or like focusing on sleep a lot more because he said that that the reason why he's so much so great is because he probably took twelve or thirteen hours of sleep a day. Yeah, and I don't blame him. I mean, look at him—he's one of the only players since Babe Ruth to pitch and hit and be、yeah. good at both of them. <laughs> like that—that's pretty incredible. So if you think about it, he plays. Two different sides of the ball, so he probably needs twice the amount of sleep. Yeah. So that's so, crazy. I didn't know that. Twelve to thirteen hours—that's insane. And the game was the game was so good. Yeah. Wow. That's a good testimonial right there for sleep, especially for baseball athletes. Nice. So, uh, for for like for those like uh. What if they can't like, like you mentioned? What if they, they're hard to get in sleep during the night? Is is like is like sleeping during the day gonna help them? I think yeah. For me, I think taking naps and trying to, not necessarily bank sleep, but also make up sleep. It was interesting、um, in the presentation. I can't believe I'm forgetting this guy's name. I need to give him credit.、Um, he said, "I think up, you can." Make up up to about fifty hours of sleep, and like over the course of a month, right? So if you get a bad week, it's not like oh well, crap, it was a bad week. I should just not do it or just keep doing the same thing. Like you can, if you get six hours of sleep for one week, the next week try to get seven, right? Try to get eight. See if you can get some of that sleep back. And I also think if you do, if you are a good sleeper or you know that you're a bad sleeper, taking naps is very underrated. And there are good times. And time frames to take a nap. In terms of, you don't necessarily want to take a nap that's like an hour right before your game because you might enter into deep sleep or you might enter into you know REM sleep and then you might be thrown off or you could throw your circadian rhythm off at certain times. I'm not super well versed in like sleep knowledge and all that stuff, but I know that taking power naps and banking sleep or getting more sleep if you didn't get a good night's sleep is Worth it, and it can actually have an effect. It's not like you're just doing it because you're lazy. If you're tired during the day, it's probably because your body is tired and you need sleep. Just like I say, when my athletes are hungry, it's probably because you should eat. <laughs> <laughs> I I personally like didn't get like I don't take naps before like the Japan won the World Classic. So, yeah. After like, after like, uh, the news are like, say, the news are saying like Shohei Tani like takes like two hours a nap or like three hours a nap. I take naps right now. There you go. Right. Hey, you're just following the science. Cool. So, uh, there's one more thing I want to ask besides like, uh, the topics I send it to you is like. 
in the like when you're first year in the league, you posted like uh two books on your Instagram. One is Jesse Rice, the intent is to grow, and the other is like the quanta mm-hmm. system. So can you like uh give us a little bit about like how does like these two books help you? Yeah, of course. So I I believe uh, here I'll start it out with the quadrant system is more of like a theory science type book and the intent to grow is a fiction book, but it's more about like soft skills and communication and, and the ability to connect with people. And so for me, I believe in the quadrant system. It's basically a high low model, but instead of high and low and being dichotomous, you have four different quadrants. You have a you have two axes. So you have a volume and an intensity axis and, you have low and low, low and high, high and low, and high and high. And so I firmly believe in that. And I think that in a season such as the G League or the NBA, you need to consolidate stress. And so after talking with our performance staff, me, our AT, and our PT, we thought it was a good idea to bring it up to the coaches so that we could all be on the same page. And so how do you talk to the coaches about this, right? How do you bridge that gap? How do you talk up the ladder with communication? Well, this is where the intent is to grow comes in. It teaches you how to communicate within an organization, whether you're talking down to an intern or a volunteer, whether you're talking to somebody at the same level as you, so talking laterally, or whether you're talking to somebody up the ladder. How do they want this information communicated? You know, how much of the information do they need? Do you need to sell them on it? Do they want presentation do they want to set up a time so you guys can really talk about it or do they want you to just kind of gloss over it right before practice just so they have an idea and can think on it so the way that those two books kind of worked hand in hand in terms of not only how can i refine my high low approach via the quadrant system and what do i think the players should be going through in terms of stress and lifting on a on a season basis but now how can i communicate that not only to my staff my health and performance staff my ats and my pts how can I communicate that to the coaches? How can I communicate that to the GM and justify the decisions that I'm making as well as talking to the players? Why are we doing this? Why are we lifting on games? Why do we lift after some games and not during others? And it's generally because of the week schedule or we didn't have as many games this month and we didn't have to, you know, but just the ability to talk through some of those things I think are really important and I do follow the theory myself. So that was kind of how those two books played played a big role in my first year. Cool. So have you ever like practiced like the game day lift before you entered the league? Not necessarily, just because you don't really have to at the collegiate setting. You do in certain aspects because certain weeks can get long. And during like conference schedules, you know when you're gonna have certain games, so you can plan it out a little bit better. But in general, you play two to three games a week, sometimes one. You know, so you don't necessarily have to. Whereas at the NBA and G League level, you play usually minimum two games, probably three, sometimes four games a week, plus travel. You could have long road trips, and that's where I really got my first chance at implementing it throughout an entire season. I guess I would say. Nice, nice, nice. So, uh, at the end of that post, there's a there's a picture about like this. You made uh, a whiteboard, and there's like showcase champions, like 
two week. What 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 exactly is that? So that was what we achieved throughout the years. So I think it was like we had a thirty nine and thirteen record. Yeah, we had a G League Finals appearance, even though we lost. We won the Showcase Cup. Um, we got. I think four guys on two-way contracts or maybe three guys on two-way contracts. So that's an NBA and G League contract essentially, but they're getting paid a lot. And then I think we had like 11 or 12 10-day contracts. So that was basically an NBA team coming to our team and saying, we want this guy for 10 days and we're going to pay him and then he'll be back with you when he's done. So that's a huge sign of development for your organization as a G League because it just shows that not only are you winning, but you're producing NBA talent and NBA teams are coming and taking guys from your team. And that starts with the GM and goes all the way down to our volunteer attendance. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge organizational effort. The roster was assembled. Great. Everybody worked together. Well, we won people didn't get hurt. And it was, it was a really good year aside from losing in the finals, unfortunately, but then we came back and won it the next year. Nice. <laughs> nice. Love this. So, That's kind of like all the questions I have for you today. So, if there's like coaches or therapists are interested in your content, or or they want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's at translational underscore training. I could try to spell it for you: T R A N S A T I O N A L underscore training. Um, that's basically where I. I'm most active on social media. I don't really have a Twitter or anything else like that. So yeah, come, come join, come follow. I'll follow you back. I have no issues with any of that stuff.、Uh, if you want to ask me questions, always feel free to reach out. I I love talking shop. Cool, cool. Appreciate that.